Welcome to episode 63 of Talking Wild Madness. This is Adam, and we are coming to you from week three, maybe week four of the self-imposed quarantine lockdown from Laura King in Albany. For, for those people listening uh, outside of Australia or outside of Western Australia, Albany is a very isolated town on the south coast of Western Australia. Now, Western Australia takes up approximately one third of the entire continent of Australia. And unlike most places in the world, Western Australia really only has one city in it. So if you can imagine uh, a, a landmass almost as large as a quarter or a third of, of the United States, having just one city in it is um, that's kind of what we're dealing with. So to, in order to, for, in order for me to get to the next town that has a population of more than a couple of thousand, I have to, I have to drive 400 kilometers North or I have to drive 400 kilometers East. If I drive 400 kilometers East, the next town after that town, I don't even know. I think it's over the border into South Australia. If I drive 400 kilometers north, the next town is another 400 kilometers after that. And that town's only got, I think, 30,000 people in it as well. So it's a very barren, empty landscape. Now, I have to also say that the introduction that we heard there was the Islamic call to prayer. And uh, I think it's magnificent and it, it evokes landscape and empty spaces. I think there might be too many people in, in the world and I think Australia does very well because it enjoys such an enormous amount of space with so few people and the standard of living is so high. And I think we m might not only be... Um, we might not only be relatively the richest people on earth, we might also be the historically richest people on earth as well with, with regards to how much freedom we have, how much resources we have, how much space we have. We are in a position where we are, we are able to exist and coexist. And Australia is often held up as a great example of how people from varying uh, cultures can coexist together. But I think really we can only do that because of the level of comfort that we enjoy, because of the level of, of, of freedom and access to resources and services and infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So I, yeah, I'm so eternally grateful to find myself in Australia. And it's something that I owe a debt to my father because he brought the family out from Ireland when I was eight years old. Technically, they did actually ask. They did say, hey, do you want to go to Australia? So technically, I could give myself the credit. Uh, but obviously, when you're eight, you just want to go wherever mom and dad are going. So he could have said, do you want to go to Afghanistan? Or do you want to go to uh, the Falklands? And I would have said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea.
But for some reason, I have no I have no idea how or why. Uh, my father chose Australia, and and now here I am in Albany, listening to the Islamic call to prayer, and and it is it is quite wonderful. So I was thinking today that I am I'm I'm obviously isolated. I'm obviously in a fixed spot. I did get an exemption to cross regional borders or what they call intra-state travel, not inter-state travel, but intra-state travel. Uh, I get to I get to drop copies of uh, Bird off to regional bookstores. So I applied for a, a, an intra-travel permit, and I felt a little bit like a Jew from the like early 1930s in Germany. No, not quite late 30s, but definitely early 30s. I felt a little bit like... Uh, a Jew that had papers and and had um, and had a little bit extra leeway, had a little bit extra wiggle room than the other Jews, and as long as I had my paperwork on me, I'd be okay. And now the paperwork is obviously a downloadable um, travel app that you have to sh- show. I haven't actually taken advantage of it. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that uh, next week. I'm going. To, I have to drive and drop some books off in. Margaret River, Yelling Up, Perth, uh, Bunbury. I was about. I there's a bookshop in Kalgoorlie that that wants that, but I think that they might have to go through the the, the post or the distribution network. But half of the half of the reason really is just to get on the road and, and drive and uh, and get out a little bit. I mean, I really could, as someone pointed out to me, I could just post all these books to the bookshops. But yeah, there's a part of me that wants to wants to drive around. And as I am here in in lockdown, I, the, you know, the stories get smaller. The stories become more detailed, and I, I kind of re- realized for the first time today, not realized for the first time today, but I certainly was, I, I was made aware, um, painfully aware that I live between two policemen. My neighbor on my right hand side is a policeman. My neighbor. Uh, now, hang on, let me get this right. Uh, the house is facing north. All right, the neighbor on my southern side is a policeman. And the neighbor on my eastern side is also a policeman. Now, my neighbor on the western side, I think, is a glazier. And the neighbor on the northern side, I believe, is some kind of stationary baron. And he's long retired, but he has made his millions by selling uh, pencils, becoming some kind of, maybe he has a franchise, maybe he's the franchisee of um, of Officeworks or something like that. Now, these are only rumors. I'm not sure about the pencil man. I'm pretty sure about the glazier because uh, his, his truck swings around on the main road uh, out of the estate. So, um, and he's and he's driving a glazier truck. And now, as far as the policemen go on the eastern side and the south side, they're definitely police because I've seen their uniforms on their washing lines, and I've seen occasionally them drive home in in the squad car. And it's interesting living between two policemen. There's there is something there's something peculiar about that. Um, I mean, the whole idea of a policeman itself 
is quite a peculiar idea. The fact that you can just choose to do that the way you can choose anything else. You can choose to be an accountant or, well, actually, you know, because if you want to be an accountant, I think you have to, don't you have to study for four or five years to be an accountant? Whereas becoming a policeman is, is kind of like becoming a, like a postman. You just have to take a civil service test. And if you have enough, if you have enough subservience and, a, and enough aggression, then you can uh, then you can just become a policeman. And it's quite a frightening thing if you uh, you know to be considered that you do an interview, you get uh, you get your sheriff star pinned onto your as as Al Sheridan Swearingen said in Deadwood pinned on the tit, and then they give you a firearm to hang on your hip. And then they basically give you uh, impunity and you get to swagger around and enjoy a level of power that you would never, ever enjoy on your own recognizance. Is that the right word? I'm not sure if that's the right word. Uh, I don't think I'd be comfortable having a gun. I don't think I'd like to have a gun in the house. I think if I had access to a working firearm, I would eventually either kill my neighbors or kill myself or kill the, the people. The blood would be spilled. I don't know whose and in what order, uh, but there would, there would be blood that did not need to be spilled. I don't know if I would have the, uh, the, the common sense and self-control to uh, harbor uh, a firearm safely. Uh, and I certainly respect those people that can, but the, I'm, 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 I'm reminded while I'm looking to the east and seeing one policeman and his and his house, and I look to the south and see my other policeman neighbor to the south. I'm reminded. Hang on to the east and the south. I'm reminded of the opening lines from that Charles Dickens uh, uh, novel, "Tale of Two Cities." It, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Or it might have been it was the worst of times and it was the best of times. But I think it was the best of times and the worst of times. And I think what I have here, I have a tale of two neighbors. And I have two very different policemen. Uh, on the south side, I have what I could only imagine, and I'm not sure because like most modern-day Australians, I don't speak to my neighbors. I just judge them over the fence. Uh and the, the, the fella, the officer, the constable, the, the sergeant, whoever he is, I can't, the clothesline, are, they're too far away to see how many stripes are on the shoulder. But the, the man on the south side, he has the outward appearance of a traffic policeman. He's a little bit portly. He's a little bit rotund. He's a little bit fat. Uh, he's, a chubby, he's a chubby man. A big fella, not a giant imposing fella, but like a lumbering, plodding fella. I hope he doesn't listen to the podcast. Otherwise, I'm going to be in all sorts of trouble. Uh, but he waddles around. He waddles around, and, uh, and he's he, at the moment, he's putting in quite a substantial veg, veggie patch. Um, so he might be a bit slimmer in the coming years, in the coming years, if, if, he, if he keeps on top of that. And he has a uh, slightly graying-haired wife in her late 60s by the looks of things. And they look kind of peaceful. They look kind of happy. You know, he's, um, 
he he he's like the policeman in Die Hard One. He doesn't look like he has drawn his firearm in the course of duty very often. Which good for him, by the way, and good good for good for everybody. Um, you know, because he's just pulling people over and he's giving people traffic tickets and he's he's directing traffic and he's you know he's doing he's doing his thing, which is which is which is beautiful. And that comes with having towns 400 kilometers apart from each other. There's not that much going on. There's not that much late night madness. And if you have a police station in a small town like we have, you'll have one or two policemen who get called out for the, when that, when it's time to kick the door in and run through the property and, and scream and shout. And then you've got these other fellas. You've got these other guys that are there to, put up uh, orange witch's hats on the road and, and tell you where the detour starts. So on the south side, I've got a vegetable garden and, and, a, and, and a pedestrian policeman who seems to be, I don't know, quietly enjoying the onset of his early retirement. I mean, he seems to be winding down. He's, he's, home, he's home a lot more than he's out and the frequency of the of the blue shirt, the blue costume. For those of you listening from overseas in Western Australia, the police wear a a, a light blue cotton t-shirt, uh, not t-shirt, button-up shirt. Uh, and and you you'll see that um, uh, blowing blowing in the breeze. So I haven't actually seen that for a while from the south side neighbour. Uh, but it seems it seems to have been a good career move for him. Anyway, it seems to have suited him. Now the fellow on the eastern side, my my other neighbor. Now just to paint a, a, a picture, the we're we're in this kind of state that used to be, uh, I think, a giant farm, and they chopped up the land into into like a, a couple of acre plots. So everyone is, when I say my neighbor, he's like 50 meters away at all times. Um, the ha- his house is like 100 meters away. So I, I see him when he walks along the fence line kind of thing. And the other neighbor on the eastern side, he's, he's probably 60 or 70 meters away. And there's a, there's a, there's a small road that separates um, my, my place from his place. But the eastern side policeman has a very different, atmosphere he has a very different vibe than the south side policeman and even from a distance of of 70 kilometers away even from that distance no hang on not 70 kilometers 70 meters even from that distance the the vibe is palpable you can almost taste how serious the eastern neighbor policeman is compared to the southern neighbor uh and the the one of, one of the um, I was going to say one of the red flags, but I don't know if it's a red flag. It's just a giveaway of, of the kind of person that this guy clearly is. The facade of his house never changes. There's nothing going on ever at any time. There's no sign of human activity. The front veranda and porch are immaculately clean. And it only has one pot plant on it at the front. There's never anyone. There's never anyone sitting out there. There's never anyone walking out the front of the house. 
the only movement that that this man has uh, with with the world. If if because I don't mind, I have to let me let this be a confessional. I don't mind sitting out the front on the veranda. I don't mind sitting out on the balcony upstairs. I don't mind being out there for hours at a time, uh, sitting on the bench, taking in the scenery, throwing the ball for the dog, drinking some beer or some wine or some whiskey, smoking some cigars or what, or what have you, and generally just taking it all in. But the man on the east, the only time he emerges from his house, he emerges from his uh, his garage, which has an automatic door that rolls up, and then this gleaming, and maybe I don't know, it must be, it must be fifteen feet long. This gleaming four wheel drive just emerges from this garage and and pulls out onto the uh, onto the small road separating us, and kind of silently, like it's running on electricity and cotton, just silently drives away from the house. And before that car drives to the main road and disappears, the garage door is already closed. And that's all you ever see of him. Now, occasionally you see him getting dropped off by his friends, by his other police friends in police cars. And maybe, I don't know exactly how long ago it was, but it wasn't too long ago, he got dropped off in a squad car. And it was very early in the morning. It was like 5.30 in the morning and I was out the front of the veranda and I was having, uh, I would have been having a, a, a coffee in the morning. The I might have been having an Irish coffee in the morning. The mornings in Albany, in rural Albany, are among the most glorious mornings anywhere on earth. The air is so clean and the smell of, of, uh, of, 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 of rain just fallen and all, all the nature, all the beautiful life is so, it's life-affirming. It is life-affirming. So I, w- I was sitting out the front early in the morning, 5.30, and the, a car pulled up, a police car pulled up to the eastern neighbor's house, and the garage started to, to roll up. So this guy must have a button for this garage both in his car and maybe on his person. Maybe he does it through his phone. Who knows how he does it? He's a very mysterious man. And he's not as uh, old as the Southside traffic policeman. He's maybe 45, and he's a bit leaner. He's not. He doesn't waddle so much. Now, he's not lean. He's. He could still, I reckon he could probably drop about 10, 10 kilos, even from 70 meters away. But he's he's big. He, he must be six foot one, or six foot two. He has a shaved head. Uh, you know, he doesn't look like a, like someone you'd want to spend time with. He looks like someone you'd want to avoid. Um, but he also looks like he's taking his job very seriously, which, in itself, in itself is a good thing, depending on on what job you have. So if you happen to be a guard at a gas chamber, if you happen to be the beast of Birkenhow, it would be good if you were unprofessional. Uh, if you happen to be a stunt driver in a film that was that was filming a, a scene in a small European uh, uh, chocolate box town 
and you had to drive a Mini or a Fiat through the streets, through the cobblestone streets around the old ancient thousand-year-old cathedrals and just missing the vegetable and fruit stands and cheesemakers. Man, that, you want that guy to know how to do his job very well, almost perfectly. The last thing you want to fake your way through is being a stunt man, a stunt driver, uh, if you really don't know what you're doing. When the when the uh, the margin for error is 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 minuscule, yeah, you don't want to be taking liberties with that. But for for better or worse, and I don't know what kind of policeman he is, he doesn't look like a traffic cop. He kind of looks like a little bit like a detective. But I have seen the blue shirts on his washing line as well. On his uh, what, what are they, what's the Australian um, the Hills Hoist? I have seen his Hills Hoist on a windy day pirouetting in in anti-clockwise circles with half a dozen open uh, light blue cotton button-up shirts uh, getting getting cleansed by the great southern wind and, and vitamin D but on this morning he 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 kind of I won't say he fell out of the car that dropped him off because that that wouldn't be true um, but it was clear that the boys had been out all night and not doing police work. The boys had been out on a bender, and because there was more than, there was three men in the car, and they were dropping him off. And for the first time, and I don't know if it was the lighting, or I don't know if this was just what was happening at that particular week for for our policeman friend, for our eastern neighbor, uh, but when he opened the garage door, now he was pulling up in the squad car, and the door started to open, Normally, I see the door open and then the car come out, but this time I, I was seeing the door open and the squad car was pulling in. And as the as the door opened, as the garage door opened automatically, after this policeman would have clicked on his clicker, he then you know, very gingerly, quite groggily, got out of the back seat of the car and. I don't know if you've ever been out drinking with, with men, but when men drink, when they say goodbye to each other at the end of the evening, it's quite different to how they say goodbye to each other when they don't, uh, when they don't have a drink together or when they haven't been drinking. Uh, so one man to his friend who has just spent an hour at a bar after work having a drink together and they've had two pints, He'll shake hands and the and the goodbye will be abrupt. It will be civil. It will be professional. And it will be, I'll see you tomorrow, Tom, or I'll see you tomorrow, Bob, or I'll see you tomorrow, fill in the blank, whatever your name is. But when men have been drinking together for 12 hours, the goodbye ceremony takes on an almost romantic, um, nostalgic, philosophical uh, character. character. It, it, it uh, becomes a very meaningful, meaningful experience. Now, also, you have to keep in mind that if you are a career policeman that, and a successful career policeman, that you may not be uh, versed in philosophical goodbyes to your, to your, uh, to your partners, to your professional partners. I imagine, I imagine that the professional partnership a policeman and his partner enjoys 
would be on a level of intimacy akin, somewhat close to the level of intimacy that he would uh, enjoy or endure with his life partner, with his romantic partner. Uh, now, I, this reminds me of another thing. The uh, There's a huge difference, and there's a huge difference when you connect with someone who is a professional bureaucrat or when you connect with someone who is, say, for example, an artist. If you are engaging with an artist, that is a very different experience than if you are engaging with a bureaucrat. And I, and I don't mean bureaucrat in a pejorative sense. I just mean it in the, in the sense that bureaucrats, and I would put policemen as, as bureaucrats, but bureaucrats have a different way of functioning, a different way of being, a different way of seeing the world. And if you are interested in engaging on a sensual level, on a very personal level, uh, on a creative, romantic level, hanging out with a bureaucrat is very different to hanging out with uh, an artist. Very, very different. And dare I say, and when I say dare I say, I do mean dare I say, dare I say that the sex life is also very, very different as well. And although I would be completely biased, I would dare to say that the sex life with an artist is far superior than the sex life enjoyed or endured with a bureaucrat. Now, having said all that, when the squad car pulled up, when he was stepping out gingerly, I, for the first time, got a, got a look of inside his garage because he had obviously driven his giant four-wheel drive to his friend's house, and now his friend was dropping him back. So I was looking at his empty garage for the first time, and on the back wall of his garage, and keep in mind this is 70 metres away, but it was still clear as day, on the back wall of his garage was tacked up on, on, the, on the wall was a giant um, uh, Union flag, the Southern Cross flag, which I hadn't seen before because it was always uh, obstructed by his enormous four-wheel drive. And by the time his four-wheel drive came out of the garage, up the driveway, the garage door had already started to close. I never got to look at it. So keep in mind, the garage inside is as empty and as spartan and as clean as the rest of the front of the house. It's almost as if the man is a, is a robot living in a, uh, a construction to house this, this robot. Now, there's a great novel from, uh, in Australia that is set in the gold fields. I think it's the gold fields, and it was written in about 1850, and it was by an Italian immigrant, and his name was, oh, his name was Carboni. I can't remember his, I can't remember his first name. Obviously, it was an Italian name, but his name was Carboni, and he wrote what it was like to be a, a, a miner on the gold fields in 1850. And it was a great inspiration for uh, for Bird. And I only came across Carboni's work uh, because I was doing the the research while I was doing my PhD. Uh, I would have had no idea who he was or that he existed. To this day, I'm still quite annoyed that I had to go through year 11 and 12 in high school and read Canadian feminist sci-fi literature 
as a you know I was, I was 15 and 16 when I finished year 12 and I had to read Margaret Atwood and I had to read looking for Ella Brandy I, I don't know who wrote I don't know who wrote that I don't know who was responsible for that but no one in my Australian high school delivering my Australian curriculum to my 16 year old head no one whispered in my ear that Patrick White existed no one whispered in my ear that Voss was a was some was a novel no one ever said that they put the handmaid's tale in front of me and said, try and make sense of that 16-year-old boy who has uh, delusions of grandeur of playing with Michael Jordan in the NBA and wants to have sex with every single girl in the class. Read this Canadian sci-fi feminist uh, dystopian literature. See, see how you enjoy that. And then, and, then, and then write 1,500 words on your interpretation of it. Oh, my Lord. Anyway, Carboni, he said in his... In his um, uh, in, in his dissertation about his work, that he just wanted to write about his reality being a miner in 1850 in Australia, just so everyone knew what it was gonna what it was like. So everybody outside knew what it was like to be a miner. And that 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 bubbled into the start of the union movement in, in Australia. And regardless of what you what you think about Carboni or mining or the union movement, but that's that's a little bit of background. And I wrote Bird because I wanted people to know what it was like to be in prison, what what it was like uh, to to have that as your daily reality. Be you prisoner, be you uh, uh, be you prison guard, be you, be you cooking teacher or music teacher or warden or whatever. Just wanted people to know. What was what was going on? So it was mind blowing to see this union, not this union jack flag, this union flag, this great southern, uh, uh, draped across. It was an enormous flag. It was very very big, draped across the back of, of his garage, and then just as he was leaving, just as he was a you know he he was leaning into the driver's uh, side. And, and this is where the close cuddling comes in for, for men uh, after they've been on the booze for 12 hours together. Uh, you don't shake hands and say goodbye. You don't tap the top of the car and walk away and say, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, you, you get right in there and, and you usually you hook your hand around the other person's neck and you give them a big squeeze. And depending on how much booze you've had and depending on how used to booze you are, you, you usually give them you usually give them a big sloppy kiss on, on the on the cheek as well. And if you're completely off, if you're completely off the pier, you might even give them a kiss on the lips. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I've done that myself. I did have a friend of a friend, and I know that sounds like a cliche, but I did have a friend of a friend literally um, put his hand on my on my dick in in a pub, and and he did it in a like a real friendly gesture. It was, jo- it was John's, um, I was playing with John. It was in J.B. O'Reilly's, which is an Irish bar in Leaderville in Perth. And we, on and off, we had like residencies there where we'd play there every Thursday night or every Saturday or every Sunday. And John had a friend called Mick. And Mick was, Mick was a beautiful soul, very, very beautiful soul. Uh, and we used to call him Mr. Channel Nine because he he was always dressed incredibly well. He'd always dress in these like gray, shiny gray sh- uh, suits, and he was a handsome he was a handsome man as well. And he would have he'd have the seventy dollar haircut. It would it would be in whatever style was was in. 
He'd always look good. He looked like uh, he'd be a game show host when game shows were were at their at their peak. Yeah, you know, he looked really good. And um, yeah, it was like eleven thirty at night, and we were we were, the gig was either finished or we were on a break, and we were about to go on for like the last set. And I was talking to Mick, and Mick grew up with John, and. You know, John is a fallen lovable person. John's the guy that, that plays with, with me. I've been playing with John for, man, I've been playing with John for nearly 15 years. And John is a fallen lovable with kind of person. You fall in love with John. He's a gorgeous man. I fell in love with John when I was 25, and then we played music together. And we still play music together 15 years later. Mick, Mr. Channel 9, he went to school with John, so he fell in love with John when he was 10. And he had he had grown up with John, so it got to be the point where we were. John John was one of my best friends. John was one of Mick's best friends, and then Adam and Mick were meeting. It was I, I'd imagine it was like parents meeting the new girlfriend, uh, and and in our own in our own small ways, I fell in love with Mick, and Mick fell in love with me. And we were laughing and drinking, and then out of nowhere, he literally puts his hand and and grabs me between the legs, um, not in a not in a sexual way, not in, a, in an aggressive way. It was just in it was like some kind of monkey ape mentality. It was just like you're now one of us, brother. It was, it was one of those weird, really, really weird things. And in in the in the sense of like the Me Too movement when. When women describe being sexually harassed or sexually uh, put upon or or sexually um, uh, what's it in, not encountered or uh, propositioned, and there's this feeling that that almost all of them describe of freezing, that they just they don't know what to do, they don't know how to even acknowledge what's going on, they don't know how to deal with the situation, and uh, that's exactly exactly how it felt i had and and it was so weird because we were having such a good time with with mick in this irish bar and then all of a sudden i'm look he's got his hand on me on me like on me and i'm i i'm speechless i just don't know what to even and he's smiling at me and again it's not sexual he's just like yeah it's it it would have been the same gesture if he had of like folded up a $20 note and stuck it in my pocket and tapped me on the, on the shoulder and said, go get yourself a drink. It was like that. It was, it was very, very peculiar anyway. Uh, so the, 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 the policeman falling out of the car or gingerly stepping out of the car and then uh, saying goodbye to his friend. It was kind of like on that, it was on that kind of a level. And then, I could hear because the Albany mornings are very still. They're very, very still. Well, at the right time of the year, they're very still. But most of the time in the, throughout the year, they're very still. And this, uh, my neighbor, my eastern neighbor policeman, uh, leaned in, gave his friend a cuddle, gave him a little kiss on the cheek, and he said, I'll talk to you later, prophet. I'll talk to you later, prophet. So this, the, the wheel man, and, and hopefully he was a sober cop. Hopefully he was a sober copper. Hopefully he was the guy that maybe started the shift that morning and he went around and picked everyone up and dropped them home. Hopefully that was the deal. But the fact that there is a copper driving around who 
other people who other coppers are calling profit. Uh, I don't know. I find it a little unnerving. I think I would rather have, I think I would rather be slightly molested by Mr. Chalamon in an Irish bar in Leaderville than know that there are policemen walking around calling each other profit. 